Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. When Jesus came back to his hometown of Nazareth, he was really on a roll. He'd been doing some great and some wonderful things. I mean, by this stage, he had calmed the storm. He'd cast out a legion of demons out of a possessed man. He, of course, as we heard last week, he'd healed a woman who was faithful enough to reach out to him in the midst of a crowd and just touch the hem of his garment. He'd even raised a little girl from the dead, as we heard last week as well. So, so Jesus is on a real high at this point, and people are being set free, left, right, and center. Now, that's a pretty impressive resume, don't you think, to have against your name at this point. It's not a bad lead-in as he comes back to his hometown, don't you think? I mean, if he was willing to do all of those things for those strangers in other places, imagine what he had in store for people in his own hometown. But things don't go as expected. The story goes that when the Sabbath came, he's back in Nazareth and he began to teach in the synagogue. You can imagine the crowds coming out, can't you, to hear their, their local boy made good. The local lad had been causing quite a stir, of course. He'd been causing a, a bit of a stir around the place with his incredible teaching and with his miracles. I mean, why wouldn't you go down to the local synagogue and, and check him out for yourself? And I suspect initially they were, they were quite proud of him. I mean, we're told that, Indeed, that they were amazed initially when they heard him preach because he, he preached with incredible wisdom, we're told. We're told that they were amazed in verse 2. Now, that's a really strong word in the Greek. Today, we might say that Jesus blew their minds or he blew them away with his preaching. Here was the local hometown boy preaching and teaching like a wise old rabbi. Now, they'd never heard anyone speak the words of God like this or perform such miracles. But after a while, the grumbling started. The cynical, snide remarks started. Isn't, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the local tradie, we might call him? This was meant to be a very subtle Put down of Jesus. I mean, having a trade was an honourable profession, an honourable way to make a living, but certainly not on the same level as a learned rabbi. I mean, they knew that Jesus hadn't studied under a rabbi. They hadn't followed. He hadn't followed around a rabbi and learnt the art of of preaching. They knew that he'd never gone to the equivalent of of Bible college, and he'd never got a theology degree. So they knew Jesus wasn't really qualified to be a teacher. So lacking the credentials, it was scandalous that he would presume to get up and teach at all. And then they get really cutting and they say, by the way, isn't this Mary's son? 
Now, calling him Mary's son is a none too subtle dig at Jesus. Now, even if his father Joseph was dead at this point, and we think he probably was, you would still normally refer to a man as the son of his father, Jesus, the son of Joseph. So by calling him the son of Mary, they, they, they probably are having a, a bit of a, a dig at him. What they're really doing is that they're remembering his, his scandalous origin story. Think back to those Christmas stories. Think back to those stories when that unwed pregnant teenager announced to the village that, that she was pregnant. What they're really doing here is they're saying that they don't really think that, that Jesus is Joseph's son at all. They're really calling him illegitimate. I mean, that's what's really going on here. And remember too, his own family probably probably shared in the disbelief about Jesus being the Messiah or, or the Christ. Back in Mark chapter 3, just a few chapters ago, his family thought he'd lost his mind and come to talk him down from this crazy adventure that he was on. So in verse 3, we read that his own hometown folk took offense at him. Now, this word in the Greek is scandalon. It means scandalized. They were scandalized. In Luke's account of this event, he even adds the startling detail that they were so scandalized by Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth that they actually tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> One sermon and they're ready to kill him. They were scandalized by Jesus, which isn't surprising. Uh, Jesus is pretty scandalous. I mean... Are we actually scandalized by Jesus? I think we probably should be. He makes some claims to absolute truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Making claims to such absolute truth is probably the most scandalous thing you can do in the 21st century, I reckon. So are we scandalized by Jesus? If so, it might not be such a bad thing. Anyway, Jesus responds only in his hometown among his, among his own relatives and in his own house as a prophet without honour. And we're told that, that tragically he could not do any great miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and, and heal them. We're told that he was amazed at their lack of faith. By the way, this is one of only two times that Jesus is amazed, we're told here, at the lack of faith of his own hometown people and at the faith of a Roman centurion as well is the only other occasion that we're told that Jesus is amazed. Now, I don't know what Jesus had in store for his hometown that day, but the text certainly implies that it was probably something great this was the one who spoke to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. Uh, this is the one who could raise the dead and he's here back in his own home village and, and here he is. Uh, you can only imagine what great things he had in store for them, what he hoped to be able to offer them, but it wasn't to be. Look, I think one of the fascinating parts of this story is, is, is one of the parts of the story that, that we can really learn from today is, is how Jesus' own friends and family, the people with whom he grew up, were, were blinkered by familiarity. They knew the human side of Jesus all too well, but they couldn't believe in the divine side 
of Jesus. They'd seen him grow up before their very eyes. I mean, their children had had played with him in the streets. They took their carpentry work to his dad's shop. They worshipped with him growing up in the synagogue, of course. Simply put, I think they'd just grown used to him. And as a result, they were blind to the bigger picture about Jesus being the Christ. They lacked the faith that he could do miracles and consequently, well, he didn't. It's important to note too, I think, at this point that there was no outside opposition to Jesus doing his mighty works here. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, they're nowhere to be seen here. They're not on the scene here at all. They're not mentioned. The opposition was from the inside. Now, of course, Jesus certainly could have done great miracles um, without the support of the locals, but that seemed to not be his style, does it? I mean, go back and have a look at all the miraculous healings of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. In just about every one of them, it was done because either the sick person themselves or because someone they knew, friends or family members, showed an incredible amount of faith in Jesus. He saw the man being lowered down through the roof, famously through the faithfulness of his friends, and and, and he was rewarded. Their faith was rewarded. He receives forgiveness and healing. He felt the touch of a woman reaching out to touch the the hem of his garment who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And her faith is what makes her well, we are told. A Roman centurion comes to Jesus in faith that he has the power to heal. A, A leper comes and kneels before Jesus declaring his faith in Jesus' healing power. Over and over, Jesus was amazed by the faith of the people who came to him for healing. And over and over, he responds with the miraculous. But here in Nazareth, he is amazed at the people's lack of faith. So what do we make of all this? How can we apply it today? Well, the first thing I think we can learn is that unbelief has devastating consequences. Right throughout Scripture, this is the case. Remember, perhaps most famously, the the faithlessness of the Israelites following the Exodus coming out of slavery. Their faithlessness stopped them from entering the promised land and an entire generation die out there in the desert rather than taking hold of God's promises for them. And we all know John 3.16 about whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. But if you read on just a couple of extra verses in John 3.18, you'll also find that John says that whoever does not believe, stands condemned. You know, it's an interesting little postscript to this story too that the historians and the archaeologists tell us that that Nazareth didn't have a Christian church until about the 4th century. So it seems that this town's faithlessness in Jesus had a terrible lasting effect for generations. So unbelief obscures the obvious. He was right there in front and they couldn't see him for who he truly was. And it elevates the irrelevant. They start picking on his heritage and, 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 and on his trade. Faithlessness makes you assault the messenger, attack the messenger, just like it ultimately led to Jesus' crucifixion. And unbelief spurns the supernatural blessings that God wants to shower upon each of us. Now, speaking of supernatural blessing, let's pause here 
And for a moment, to think about this little phrase that I reckon is really interesting. He couldn't do any miracles there except for laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. What is that that saying? It seems to me that this is insinuating that the physical healing that Jesus did was one of the minor things that Jesus wanted to do. It seems that this physical healing is the least he could do. Yet how often do we make it the most that he can do and perhaps just perhaps limit his work among us? Jesus was able to heal the sick in Nazareth that day, but they missed out on the mighty works, we're told. We're told that they missed out on the really good stuff. I mean, how amazing is that? It seems the people of Jesus' hometown wanted the physical well-being and comfort, but not much else. So church, let's not be like them, please. You see, Jesus did a lot of physical healing and relieved a lot of suffering, but that was not his main mission. Now, please don't get me wrong. I don't want to downplay the need for physical healing for one second. We should absolutely pray for the sick. We're we're told in scripture several times to do just that. However, compared to what else he can achieve, compared to his mighty works, Physical healing, it seems, is just the supporting act. Jesus desires to do so much more for us than merely provide for our physical health. Perhaps the healing you need is relational, emotional, or spiritual. Friend, invite Jesus into your life and tell him all about it. And do so with a belief that he still has the power to work wonders in your life and see what he can do. I'm wondering too, where is Jesus' hometown today, do you think? I mean, where do you reckon Jesus would go today if he wanted to be among his people? Well, I don't necessarily think Jesus would go back home to Israel. I reckon the church is Jesus' hometown today. We are his people. And if that's the case, I wonder, is he able to do all the mighty works that he desires to do among us today? While I'm fully convinced that Jesus can do anything without limit, I think we see from this passage that our own attitudes can sometimes put the brakes on what Jesus will do in our midst. God has given us freedom of choice, free will. And depending on how we exercise that free will, We can either invite him or hinder him from doing mighty works in our lives. Though through a a, a miserly or or hard-bitten or an unbelieving or a, a cynical attitude, I think we can limit what God will do among us. Like the people of Nazareth uh, that day. I think we've all been in churches where the preacher is given greater kudos for getting us out on time, for doing all the right things, rather than simply surrendering himself to God's word. Too many of we complacent Western Christians have traded a glorious, living, breathing relationship with the living God who made heaven and earth for a a nominal, pew-warming religion of simply playing church. In this kind of environment, where people are no longer amazed at the power of Jesus' name and the promise of his kingdom. I fear that Jesus is unable to do the miracles that he so desperately wants to do among us. I mean, he tells us, he tells us that we can, we can ask for mighty things and he'll do them. Matthew 17, uh, 20 says, I tell you the truth. 
If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you, Jesus says. Uh, Mark 9.23 says everything is possible for him who believes. And John 14.13 and 14 says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Friends, these are some pretty bold promises, aren't they? Yet how many of us really believe them? And if we don't really believe in these promises, what are the chances that Jesus will do them? So by way of application, friends, can I suggest that if it's going to take you rereading the Gospels, rereading the Jesus story for yourself, rereading his words and actions for yourself to be reminded of just what Jesus can do, then start reading, please. If it means that you come to Sunday worship or or to your midweek Bible study with an expectant attitude that God will be there, that he'll be present, he will visit you there and he will move, then come expecting a miracle. But Jesus won't be able to move among us if we are complacent or, or unbelieving, I think. I want us at Church of the Marketplace to step out in faith in this new season and seek a miracle in bucking the trend across the Western church, and that is to grow. I want us to be a people who firmly believe that Jesus has the power to revive a congregation, to make a difference in our community, to restore broken relationships, to heal broken bodies, to set people free from addiction and pain and suffering, to bring joy and revival in our midst. Amen. If we believe and rely on Jesus as our strength, I reckon we will be able to to move mountains. Now, I don't know what Jesus has in store for our congregation in particular. I don't know what he has planned for your life. I don't know what impact Jesus will have on our city or on this land or, or on our world through his church. But I know exactly what will happen if we don't turn to Jesus with open hands and and open hearts in adoration and expectation that he can do great things. And that's absolutely nothing. Friend, I I don't want us to miss out on the power or mighty work that God wants to do through me or, or through our church or through any of you. So let's not limit what Jesus can do in our midst through our unbelief. Let's not be blinkered by the familiar. Friends, I don't want it to be said about church in the marketplace that Jesus wanted to come and do mighty works through us, but he could not. Wouldn't that be tragic? Wouldn't that be heartbreaking? Let's invite Jesus in to come and do whatever he wants among us. Let's give him full power, free reign among us. Let's not hinder him from doing any mighty works and miracles in and through us here at church in the marketplace. Let me leave you with a closing little modern day parable. It was a particularly harsh drought this year, yet another year. A number of years had come and gone through this terrible drought and the crops were failing in this particular little country town. So one hot, dry Sunday, the village parson told his congregation, there isn't anything that will save us except to believe in the power of Jesus and to pray for rain. So go home. Pray and believe and come back next Sunday ready to thank God for sending the rain. 
So they did as they were told. The people went home and returned to church the following Sunday. But as soon as the local minister saw them, he was furious. We can't worship today, he said. You do not believe. But they protested. We do pray. We prayed and we do believe. The parson responded, said, well, believe? Then where are your umbrellas? I reckon this story applies to us today. There are those people who have left their umbrellas at home day after day, week after week, year after year. They expect little from God. Others of us dream our dreams and we believe that God can indeed do mighty works through us. These people journey through life always being prepared for God to move. So what are you expecting? Friend, will you bring your umbrella to church each Sunday over the coming weeks and months and years? I hope so. Will you believe in Jesus to do a mighty work among us? There's nothing on this earth that we need more. Desperately, more desperately than anything we need is is Jesus. His saving grace, his mighty work among us. We need some miracles. We need Jesus to bring peace and justice and healing and reconciliation and joy into our world. We need him to restore our broken communities, to restore broken families and nations. So friends, are we willing to believe in him to do great things amongst us? I hope so. Friends, let's pray. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. I'm going to ask God to break in. We're going to surrender our lives. We're going to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and have your way in us. Won't you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Ah, Loving Lord, God of the miraculous, we surrender our lives to you now afresh. We repent of all of those times and all of those ways that we've struggled to believe that that you are real, that you have the power to work in our lives. We repent of all of those times when we've relied on our own strength. We repent of all of those times we've gone our own way, done our own thing, thinking that we know best. Father, we pray that you might help us to not be like the people of Nazareth that day. Father, we pray that we won't become blinded by familiarity, that we won't simply see Jesus as a, someone in some stained glass or someone in the pages of an old dusty book, but that he'll be very real for us in our lives and that we'll throw our complete trust, our entire lives upon him. Lord, we surrender our lives to you afresh. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and break into our lives. Come and break into our families, into our neighbourhoods, into our city, Lord, across this nation and right around the world. Come and do the miraculous once more. By your Holy Spirit, move through us, Father. Come and bring healing and restoration, Lord. Come and bring peace and reconciliation and your joy. Come and bring it to us in the here and the now, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.